Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. In this episode, what does it mean to use film and television for the good? A conversation with Abigail Disney and Dorothy Fortenberry. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Pete Ford, a senior at Calvin College and one of the student fellows at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. On today's episode of Rewrite Radio, working in the television and movie industry, Abigail Disney and Dorothy Fortenberry are involved in making some of the most significant media today. In this wide-ranging conversation with Jennifer Holberg, co-director of the CCFW, they discuss the ethical imperatives that shape, and should shape, the stories we tell on screen. Abigail Disney is an award-winning filmmaker, philanthropist, and the CEO and president of Fork Films, which has supported more than 50 films and series that focus on social issues. Disney received her bachelor's degree from Yale, her master's from Stanford, and her doctorate from Columbia. An active supporter of peacebuilding, Disney is passionate about advancing women's roles in the public sphere. In 2008, she turned to documentaries, inspired by the story of a group of women who used nonviolence to bring an end to Liberia's long civil war. The film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, was named Best Documentary at the Tribeca Film Festival. Disney's directorial debut, The Armor of Light, premiered at the 2015 Tribeca Film Festival. Dorothy Fortenberry is a producer and writer on Hulu's Emmy Award-winning series The Handmaid's Tale. Prior to that, she spent three years on the writing staff for the CW series The 100. In 2017, IAMA Theatre Company produced the world premiere production of Fortenberry's play Species Native to California, a modern retelling of The Cherry Orchard. Her play Partners had its world premiere at the Humana Festival of New American Plays at the Actors Theatre of Louisville. Fortenberry's essays on subjects including faith, fear, and the politics of country music have appeared in The Los Angeles Review of Books, Real Simple, and Pacific Standard. Fortenberry is a recipient of the Helen Merrill Award for Emerging Playwrights, and she has an MFA in playwriting from the Yale School of Drama. From the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing, here's Abigail Disney and Dorothy Fortenberry in a conversation moderated by Jennifer Holberg. So, you know, the poet Shelley famously said that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, right? Poets are the bosses of things. And I think if he were living today, he would say people doing entertainment really are, filmmakers, TV folk. So talk to me a little bit about sort of your work up to this point and how you feel like it's it's helping shape culture or really respond to kind of what we're, the moment that we're in. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, I think one of the things about being somebody who makes things, is this, is this on? Yeah, are you on? Necessary? I don't, okay. You're good. Um, or even being somebody who makes things is you can't 
really plan for the way that your work intersects the mm -hmm. moment. Um, I, I feel like I'm stealing this from Paula Vogel, who maybe stole it from Tony Kushner, but that like you you make your work and then sometimes your Angels in America hits at exactly the moment when the country needs Angels in America and it becomes the thing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and that's something I think about a lot, uh, which is I feel like we were making Handmaid's Tale and we were making, you know, sort of a prestige streaming show for seven feminist librarians, you know, like we, it, 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 right. it, 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 we didn't know sort of the moment we were making it into and the show would have been the same either way, but you know, it sort of hit the world at a particular time and then it became a different thing. And I, in my own writing in plays or, or essays or whatever I'm doing, I always feel like I'm trying to make the thing that I want to make. I am absolutely influenced by the world. I can't help but be, but I also can't really know where my thing will land, mm -hmm. you know? And, and there definitely have been things that I have written that I felt were very much about a particular moment. And then by the time they got produced, sort of the cultural conversation had moved on and they suddenly became historical. Mm -hmm. And I was like, gosh, I, that was just two years ago. And we don't even, we aren't even thinking about this issue anymore. You know, um, the conversation has really changed. So I don't think you can plan it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you can sort of breathe in the air of what's around you, but you also kind of have to just make the thing you feel like making. And sometimes it will intersect with a particular moment it will, and it will become a phenomenon. And then sometimes, it, you know, I've had it both ways. <laughs> and then sometimes I'll be like, yeah, nope, no one really cares about that thing anymore. <laughs> um, and then maybe in 20 years they will again, you know, and, may, and maybe that thing was just the wrong fit for its time. I think it's really hard to, to be super strategic about it. Yeah, I'm super conscious of the influence of culture on culture. <laughs> um, I guess partly because, you know, I grew up with this crazy last name and um, went off to school and contended with um, the, the sort of presumptions people had about what I might think about things politically or what I might believe about the world because Disney had so kind of declared itself as part of the culture wars in the 60s and 70s, and because it had a history of um, obviously not just furthering narratives, but even inventing them whole cloth about who women should be in the world and um, so forth, and kept right on doing it. And so a lot of what we as women carry into our lives you know, has been sort of wired into us before we were even conscious enough to be able to say no to that narrative. I'm still waiting for my, my birds to come help me <laughs> make clothes and such. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people, if you want to see what a Disney princess looks like, here it is. <laughs> you know, a little overweight, kind of old. <laughs> very, very opinionated. Um, yeah, and no birds help me dress. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess that's always been really in my head. I'm, I've always been very engaged and interested in concentrating on what it is that media does because most of the people who make media aren't thinking about the effect they have on what people think and the narratives they take away. And that's a problem um, because I'm, I'm so amazed when you go and you work and you know all the art directors and costume designers and makeup people and people building the backgrounds and people doing the sound and the lighting and everything. You can't believe how much talent there is 
in this business. There is so much extraordinary talent, so many people who, couldn't, who do things you could never imagine doing, and they take all those gifts and all that talent, and they go to work every day and apply it to such dreck. You know, and, and I don't know how people don't go home and cry every night, given the level of their talents compared with the dreck that they produce. And then, you know, dreck is, is, is morally neutral. You know, dreck is what comes out when you're sort of slouching into your day. Um, but, you know, in fact, there's much more insidious stuff. And, and the Disney princess, in terms of what it's done to women, in terms of what they should think about themselves in life, is nothing as nearly as poisonous as 50% as of what's come out of Hollywood in terms of women in the last 25 years. It's gotten worse, not better. Um, so I, 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 uh, I wish um, more people cared and focused and, and therefore aspired into their best selves when they go to work every day. And what Dorothy's describing is, is all we have, all we can do. We can't plan for some something to go out into the world and make a splash. You can't, if, if, if anybody knew how to do that, they would do it all the time, obviously. There would never be failure. Um, so all you can do is do the best thing you can do, you know, and reflect the best of yourself and in, in your aspirations and then, and then hope. Um, and it is a little bit like, you know, there might be a wave breaking just when you release it. And, and certainly for Handmaid's Tale, that was, <laughs> I've never seen it more remarkably timed. Um, and, and, and then maybe you get a cultural conversation going. It's hard. I mean, because, you know, with both Prey and Armor of Light, I was very conscious of trying to spark conversation. And when you're trying, it's like, have you ever started one of those old-fashioned motors where you pull on the thing and it's just not starting? That's hard to do. Um, it's hard to make it happen if the culture isn't breaking your way. Mm -hmm. But we... Are, are like the little computer programmers that you never knew you had making your brain work the way it works before you ever know it's happening to you. And um, if we're not attentive to what it is that we're making in people, the narratives they take away, um, we can create terribly dysfunctional places like the one we're currently in. Yeah, I, I, there's something I really I want to respond to in that, which is <clears throat> something I learned by being in a TV writer's room. I'd never been in one before and then I got my first job, is so many of the ideas people have in the room, you have to have a million ideas. It's, a, it's just a huge idea generation factory. So many of the ideas come from other media, you know, that, that sometimes people will pitch things like, oh, this is an exchange I had with my neighbor, and maybe we could put something in the show like this, but often it's, oh, you know that scene in Back to the Future? Like, what if we did it like that? And there are certain things that are very common in media um, that are very rare in real life. And because the makers of media, we're consuming the same media you know, that everybody is. And so an example I think about is um, you know, the scene where you, know, you get the bad guy and he's got the secret and what do you do and it's hard, but then you're like, we should probably torture them. And then you torture him and then he confesses and then he saves the day. It's a really, really common scene in movies and television. Um, and it, it's, you know, I understand why from a dramatic point. It's two people, it's cheap to produce, you know, it's high stakes. You, you've got your good guy who doesn't want to do the torture, but oh man, all those people in the building are going to go if he doesn't. So he sucks it up and does, you know, like I understand why it makes a great scene, um, but it's so false and it's so not 
actually the reality of of torture and it never and we never stay with that character in a way where we go like what's it like waking up the morning after you tortured somebody you know who, who has it turned you into um we do it for that scene we get the kick out of that scene and then we're on to the next thing and I, one of the things I was proud of when we worked on The 100 is we, we were at a, a point where we had a, a character who had been brought in and we were going to do that torture scene. And the room worked really hard to try to find a way not to tell it the way it had always been told. Um, but I th- but it, was, it was an uphill battle because the narrative in our mind had been so set by all the other movies and all the other TV shows we'd seen that like this is how you do the torture scene. And it was really challenging to try to find a different way to tell it. And, I, and, I, and we, we can't always succeed. And I just, I think about that so much that the building blocks that we have are the movies and the TV shows that came before. And so we're trying to build something new, but often we're building out of the same flawed, you know, non-reality-based blocks. And, it's and more it's, like Lego than Play-Doh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so how do, you, how do you kind of reject one of the Legos and say, like, this is not grounded. This isn't, you know, this is a thing that happens, but it doesn't happen like this. How does it really happen? Oh, that's awful. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess we could put that on TV. Or not. Um, but it's, it's a challenge. And there's this way in which narrative normalizes, right? And so if I, as the viewer, know, oh, yeah, well, now we're going to have that scene... I also am much more willing to accept that in my public policy or in my or in my life. I, I mean, I think that's true. I, I teach women's literature here, and one of the things we talk about is the way in which romantic narratives, you know, all these things that we're accustomed to from the time we're little kids and how so many of them are broken, and yet those are the Legos I have. So how is it that we even start to create new Legos without being, which I think is some of your point too, without being didactic or overly moralizing, but having a moral center and trying to move away from that. And so in, I think both of you are interesting in the sense that you are chronicling a lot of sort of, you know, documentaries, things that have happened, sort of history, and you're sort of giving us ways of thinking about how close we are to it becoming history. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk to me a little bit, I mean, maybe even extending what you were thinking about from this last question about how, how, how we, how we start to maybe get new Legos by, um, yeah, thinking about different stories in our history, how that normalizes a different narrative, how thinking about kind of dystopic or future-based things. Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah. So I, one of the narratives I'm most engaged with is the good guy with a gun narrative mm-hmm. um, because it's just such an interesting thing how certain people are when you talk to them about how this is going to unfold. And it... It, if you've ever been engaged in anything traumatic, anything like a car accident, doesn't have to involve a gun, what you know is that everything happens so quickly. And you're, you, what people always describe is, I felt like I was moving through honey or you know, wet cement. It was, I kept moving so slowly, but everything else was happening so fast. The, the speed of it is one of the primary shocks that people feel. Um, and you know, what people don't understand about the good guy with the gun narrative is it's rooted in not reality, but filmmaking, 
right? A lot of very talented people came to work that day. They did the sound, the light. They did all that stuff to make it look really real. And then in the edit room, you know they slowed it down by like 10%, 15%, because they're not spending all that money on all those effects and having you not notice them because they go by so quickly, because that's what happens in reality. Mm -hmm. They want you to really see and understand what's happening. Well, that's not how it unfolds. And so if somebody walks in your classroom, your bar, your restaurant, or whatever with a gun, you're not going to you're not going to get your weapon out and have if you're if you're carrying it safely without this you know with the safety on and have a chance um, in that kind of scenario so you're preparing yourself for something that's just not rooted in reality if if any of you right now just imagine war just for one second imagine war imagine you're in it so unless you fought in one what you just imagined is invented in hollywood every single shred of it and what Tony Zinni said to me, the former head of the Marine Corps and, and chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, was I have to spend so much time unlearning the boys when they come in, mostly boys. Um, I have to spend so much time unwinding in them what they think they understand about what it's going to be like. Because it's never the first thing everybody says to me is, that was not at all what I thought I was going to encounter. So um, it, that narrative we carry into the voting booth, that narrative we carry into what it is we expect our president to look like and act like and the way he should posture, say, around Syria and chemical weapons and things. Um, and so there's a real world problem that results. And, and you know, one of the interests in, in documentary, one of the reasons there's so much interest in documentary right now is it's authentic. Um, we're telling actual stories of things that actually happen, and they're surprising. Whereas coming out of a lot of fiction, it's not surprising. It's the least surprising thing happening out there. So there's a need for surprise. When you, when you, when you go to culture, you're looking to be surprised, not reinforced. And, and so that's why The Handmaid's Tale you know, really struck a chord, because oh, finally, something original, something genuine, something that I can really sink my teeth into, even if it's all imaginative. Um, we're not doing the work of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, we're not pushing ourselves to say, I mean, what I always say to people about the good guy with the gun, it's like, now I want you to imagine you're standing over a bleeding corpse. Now what are you feeling? Was that the right thing to do? Are you certain he's guilty? I mean, you need to, if you're going to, if you're going to just slouch into whatever narratives you're handed, you need to really understand what they are and push them past where they concluded in your imagination and really follow them to their real conclusions. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree with all of that. I also think when we think about where we get, you know, okay, I'm going to do this metaphor. Where do we get the Play-Doh to make the new Legos? Mm -hmm. Because all the <laughs> Legos are old and busted. Um, Looking at Margaret Atwood and how she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, it was very, very research-based. Um, and that's something that we in the room really responded to and really took seriously, that she had as her guiding principle, nothing is going to happen to a woman in this book that hasn't happened to women in history. Mm -hmm. um, and we took that, and in the room, even when we went beyond um, you know, the text of the book, in season one, there are things that happen to women that don't happen in the book, but they are things that are happening to women right now. They are things that happen to women historically. Um, we took really seriously that mandate um, because I think when you start to just sit around and imagine, like, what's the worst thing you could do to a woman, it, it gets weird. Like, there's a weird... Um, 
almost eroticism that comes to it. Like you're just kind of speculating like, oh, and then we could do this and then we could do that. And it becomes kind of detached from reality and it becomes this sort of um, sadistic fantasy. Um, and I think something that we really worked on was nothing is going to happen to a woman in this show that we can't point to and say, yes, that happened in 1852. Yes, that happens over in this community right now, today. Um, and we did a lot of research in the, it's a very research oriented room. I mean, the people in that room are, are all a bunch of nerds and like, and, and the book is beloved enough that people take your phone calls is a thing that I learned. So like, I can't call anybody up as me, but I can call anybody up from The Handmaid's Tale. Um, so I got to talk to the head of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch and just be like, tell me the worst things people are doing to women right now. Um, and that was not a fun phone call, but um, it was really useful. And I came away with a lot of information that I was able to bring back to the room and share with the writers. And I think looking at history and looking at reality are the best tools we have, even if we're doing imaginative and speculative work, to make sure that our work is real and messy and human. Um, something I think about all the time is that the places that Margaret Atwood was when she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, half of it was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and half of it was in Berlin. And I think you can read the book and you can see that. Like, you know, absorbing the world around you, absorbing the histories of the places that you're in, really paying attention. Um, I, I think it comes through. And I think then actually doing something that's so based in reality has the experience by the viewer of then feeling new. Like it feels like it's from out of the blue. It feels like it's from nowhere. It feels not like anything else. And actually it's just because we tried to take the time and do the research and we weren't just going on like, oh, what'd they do to that woman in that other movie? That was messed up. Maybe we could do that. You know, that's, that's why the Me Too moment flowed so seamlessly into the Time's Up moment, right? Because it really matters who's telling these stories. Mm -hmm. there's, there's this story um, about how Quentin Tarantino, when he was shooting uh, Inglorious Bastards, he, he said to Diana Kruger, Okay, now, I, I don't like the way people act when they're being strangled. Uh, they just, it's not convincing enough to me. And I'm going to be close up on your face, and we'll just see the hands just in the bottom of the frame. So I'm going to choke you, um, because I don't trust any of the actors to do this right. And then I'm going to really choke you. I'm going to cut off your air. And you're going to panic for a second. But I'll let you go. I'm going to let you go. But I need you to actually think you're dying in panic. And, and it, he insisted be his hands, and he insisted on, on, and if you watch the film, then now you'll know what you're seeing. She really, really is dying. So um, when, when you're in that moment of trying to imagine an awful thing, and you're secretly a little bit loving it, that's not a convincing way for, for a woman to see a rape story unfold or to see a story of anything else awful happening to women. And so when the writer's room is just a bunch of guys who've been force-fed a steady diet of Quentin Tarantino and Animal House and whatever else, and oh God, I'm so old. That was like, <laughs> <laughs> that was so old. Anyway, um, that 
that, that what they're going to call upon is everything they've ever seen before, which was also invented by a bunch of guys in the room, which they invented out of something another bunch of guys invented. And it's this ball rolling downhill. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it kind of almost is like a refinery process mm -hmm. with each group of guys. It, the, the ante is raised and the stakes are higher. Mm -hmm. you know. But I, so I, I've, I've, there are very few things that I've seen men do where they really, really understand. There are men who do. Um, but generally they surround themselves with women. It's not that women have some magic secret sauce. It's just that there's stuff we know that you don't understand. And if you would let us tell you about that, we'd have something genuine here. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things about, about Handmaids was Bruce from the beginning hired a bunch of women writers, but then also insisted that the director of the first three episodes be a woman. And I think so much of those first three episodes is in the direction. I mean, I love the script. I think it's brilliant. I think he's brilliant. Like, <laughs> I, he's, I mean, I didn't write it. I can say that. Um, you know, he wrote it. I think he's great. But he, and he went to, he went to fight, and he had to fight the studio and the network for that. You know, he had to say, like, I know she's never done TV. I know she did this one indie film, and you, you know, don't necessarily know who she is, but she is the person and I'm going to throw my weight around until you, you know, let her do it. And she was brilliant. And now she's got the Emmy and she's blowing up and she's amazing. But it, it was it was this conviction that he understood that having a woman director and that woman director, not just like, oh, you're a woman off the street. Great. You get to direct the <laughs> pilot of The Handmaid's Tale. You know, this particular woman um, could get in the interiority of the character so that when we show sexual assault, it's not outside looking at it kind of getting turned on it's inside in her perspective trying to sort of dissociate trying to cope try, that we're we're very present with the woman actually having the feelings mm -hmm. and the experience and that's never going to be sexy you know because we're feeling her feelings for her and it's a critique though of this kind of insatiable one-upmanship every time. I mean, I've been noticing um, my nieces are big fans of the Marvel, you know, and how much longer those scenes are in terms of, you know, even Wonder Woman, which I enjoyed. Man, that is a long scene at the end with the battle scene. I was like, that could have been edited down a little bit, and I would have still enjoyed it. But it's partly because we need it, that there's a sense that people, unless you keep escalating, whether that's sexual violence or whether that's violence violence. I mean, it, it is it is a sense that, oh, well, the gadgetry runs it instead of the story. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. You know, I, I wrote this paper in grad school. <laughs> um, that this is the this is a problem we have that's inherent and women aren't going to necessarily solve it because um, capitalism comes together mm -hmm. with en entertainment and the yeah. dynamics Yesterday of entertainment. Yesterday you talked about the entertainment industrial complex, yes, right? Exactly. Which I thought was a great title for right. it. So, so during the Jacobean period, right after Shakespeare died, so at the end of Shakespeare's life, he wrote a couple of plays that were kind of like stabby. You know, there was some violence in them and they were pretty popular. And so when he died, the Jacobean dramatists came along and they were like, well, he stabbed two guys in that play. I'm going to stab four guys in this one. And the next one was like, I'm going to cut this guy's tongue out. And it was commercial driven. Mm -hmm. It was driven by the box office for the last play. And if you track that through the Jacobean period, you could come right back and look at Clint Eastwood working his way up in Hollywood and see the same dynamic at work. And, and what happens is it's, it's self-reinforcing and it accelerates. Mm -hmm. And especially in the fast, fast and instant entertainment environment we're in, 
it itself reinforces and escalates partly because everybody's in competition with each other. Now you have to get there first and cheapest and, and, and with you know, something even more amazing that gets even more attention because it's even harder to get attention. All of those things feed the impulse to create things that are more of whatever it was before, in this case, sexist and violent. And, and so we, we have a problematic dynamic. Um, and I, I don't know how to slow that down. And I don't think women are necessarily going to be the answer to the problem. But at least in, in this case, they do push back on. I, I've never been raped. I didn't really understand it until a Bosnian woman said to me that when I was raped, I felt like a refugee inside my own body. I, I've carried this with me in my heart ever since. Because I thought, if I had not sat still, if I had not let her talk, if I had not listened all the way through till she got to that, there, there's something I, deep I wouldn't really now know. Um, so somehow we have to find a way to put the pause button on those dynamics and step outside of this world long enough to listen and hear and understand so that you bring all the richness of what you've learned to what you do. And, and I personally believe that it's a loser's game to try and get in there and be their first, fastest, biggest, um, because you'll drive yourself crazy in the process. And people will, in the swirl of that, notice Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it creates an environment in which you're more likely to succeed with something actually good. Yeah. But it's, but it's yeah. hard. And I, I think even for us, we have the temptation. I know in season two, there is a thing of like, oh, make it bigger, you know, make it, make it more, make it, you know, the first season was dark. It should be darker. The, da, 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 you know, like the, <laughs> that kind of one upsmanship, which I think, yeah, it's the logic of capitalism. It's like, you know, McDonald's is only as good as the amount that it's growing. You know, things are only as good as the amount that they are better than the thing, bigger and more than the thing that came before. I think it's something we had to in the room sort of talk about and think about and say, okay, the pressure is going to be on us to go giant and be more horrible and what is the actual story we actually want to tell, but it's, it's a fight. There, there are a lot of forces that are pushing in different directions and so, you know, I, the most helpful thing I can think of is just having clarity with yourself about what you want your thing to be because everybody around you is going to be pushing, you know, nine million different directions. And, and if you don't have a super strong sense of like, nope, it's like this, um, you'll get run over. And, and I think watching, you know, being in the room, watching Bruce and watching the other producers, there's some things that they have really clung to um, as sort of strong, strong, strong values. And it makes a huge difference because you have to be able to resist that onslaught. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so talk a little bit about it. Both of you are Catholic, uh, have come out of Catholic traditions. Uh, talk about how, how that might inform part of kind of how you come to that sort of inner conviction or the, or the sense of the stories you want to tell that aren't sensationalistic or that are respectful of, you know, or even knowing how to do that. How does your faith play into both of y'all's work in that, in that way? Um, this is a weird way to, this is a weird answer, but a thing I've noticed about being Catholic in the room is that I don't think the worst thing is dying. Mm -hmm. Like so much of entertainment is premised on the absolute, absolute worst thing that could happen to the main character would be for that character to die. And I feel like I'm the person in the room being like, you know, like, it's not great to die, but like, you know, how's their immortal soul doing? And, and, and 
it, that's not like a question that gets asked a lot. Um, <laughs> and, and so often there'll be scenarios where like the justification is self-preservation. It's like, well, this character had to do blah, 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 because if they didn't, they were going to die. And I feel like I'm like, uh-huh. You know, like that's, it's not good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not good enough for me. I, I don't believe that anything is justified in the name of self-preservation, but it's an incredibly um, commonly held value. You know, it's a very common Lego, is that as long as we can make the audience believe this character thought their life was in danger, then they can get away with literally anything because we've constructed the scenario where they believed their life was in danger. And I, I feel like a big weirdo um, in the room sort of saying like, ah, you know, like that's, that's not a value that I come to the table, you know, I come to the table with like centuries of martyrs and you know, like it's gruesome. You know, I grew up with like my little book of, you know, 60 saints for girls and they are all just these ghastly awful ends and, and that seeps into you and you're like, yeah, I know, but you know, so-and-so was boiled in oil and she didn't. So, you know, suck it up lead character. Um, it's a really different... And she kept on singing. And she, Yeah, exactly. So, you know, no one in network of television is as tough as any saint. Um, this is why context is everything, because they're boiled in oil in other contexts is really sautéed. <laughs> so, so for me, I, I'm so happy to hear you say that, because I actually feel like the, I'm the only person who ever says that. So uh, you can't imagine I'm smelling right no now. No one Abby, says this. Dorothy, Abby, Dorothy, Dorothy, Abby. And, and um, I, yeah, I was raised in a Catholic tradition, but I very much left it behind for the far less reassuring uh, militant agnosticism that I now cherish. <clears throat> um, <laughs> but I, um, I, I have always believed that there are far worse things than dying. And so you, the, the thing about Catholics is you're never really not a Catholic because they get in you, like they, their tentacles are deep <laughs> and uh, they never entirely let you go. And you, you, ne- you never leave behind the boiling in oil and the fire and the brimstone. And, and I literally was raised on those sermons. If you've ever read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and people would say in class, my freshman year, oh, they, you know, this is obviously comedy. He's, he's overdoing this sermon here. And I was like, <laughs> I heard that sermon. I actually had a priest who was so imaginative that growing up in Southern California, he understood that he could help us understand brimstone by describing it as when your father lights the barbecue <laughs> and the coals turn white. That's when they're hottest. I mean, how long did it take? Anyway, um, <laughs> I... Um, really was amazed when we went around to very, very conservative evangelical churches where I had assumed that faith was the deepest. Um, the, the more conservative the church, the deeper the fear was. And I kept coming back to Rob off camera and saying, I don't, I don't understand this. It, like the one thing my grandmother never was, was afraid to die. You know, it, it's like if there's any reward of faith, shouldn't it be not being afraid to die. So what's going on? Is it that they don't believe what they claim to believe? Or is it that they're, they're doubting it? Or, or do they think in their heads maybe they've really been bad all along and they're going to the other? I don't know. I don't understand this. It's just not a Christian sensibility to navigate and plan your life around fear. 
And, and that's what you're doing. The day you say, I am going to shoulder all of the risks to myself and my family that are involved in arming myself up on the very remote chance that some stranger is going to break into my house and kill us all, which doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, people. It doesn't happen, or in very rare instances. Um, and uh, I, I do, it's just a cost-benefit analysis I'm, I'm not understanding. So I, I try to push on that. I try to question it when I can, because that is the presumption in Hollywood and, and I guess even in religious communities that needs to be questioned. If we're, not, if we're just put on this earth to just live as long as possible, my God, that's the stupid job. You know, if it's just about pushing the finish line back, what am I doing here? There has to be something more important to be done. Yeah, it's probably not that surprising that Jesus keeps saying to people over and over, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Don't oh, be man. Afraid. Yeah, like, I don't have any tattoos, but, like, if I got a tattoo, you mm -hmm. know, that's the tattoo I'd get. But that's also because I have huge anxiety problems, right? <laughs> so I'm, like, a person who is temperamentally incredibly anxious and fearful in a religion that, yeah, is constantly telling me, like, don't be afraid. Chill out, yeah. you know? And, and I would only, I think, be more anxious if I weren't religious, but like, it also hasn't totally fixed it. Like mm -hmm. I'm still, you know, I'm still well, me. Yeah, and I think the fact Jesus says it so much means he's acknowledging that. Yeah, people. That's are. our basic state, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as we think about this, um, one of the interesting things when Dorothy and I were talking about uh, this conversation before was uh, thinking about breaking old narrative patterns, even for with for women. So your example was, um, I'm just going to read, just so I get it right. Um, you say, I went to a panel at the Writers Guild of America once of TV writers who were mothers, and the whole vibe was basically, I wrote a script while laboring in the hospital, and so can you. <laughs> As opposed to, I, wrote a, I rewrote a script while laboring in the hospital, and oh man, that was awful. How can we prevent that happening to you? And I wonder about, you know, we've talked about narratives of violence and narratives sort of maybe that are more driven by men, but it does feel as if there are narratives that are driven by women that are that are equally problematic, perhaps. And maybe, I don't know if you want to start since it was yours, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think for me, it's it gets to the sense of, you know, what does it mean to go through trauma and, and then how strong the impulse is after it to make sure that the generation under you also goes through that trauma. Um, right. You know, that, that there's this idea of, of toughness. And I think, you know, look, like something like 30% of the writers in Hollywood are women. You know, that's not a lot. Um, to be in that 30%, you do have to be tough in some ways. I get that. Like, you know, I am, and, and I know other people are too. There are things that we've gone through that are like, uh, but you get through it. Um, but I also feel like if you only, if your only lesson that you get out of it was I survived, um, you know, that's not the only thing. There's also can be a sense of, is there another, can we envision another universe where it doesn't have to be like that? And that's harder. You know, in, in any context, right? It's new Plato. It's it's hard to imagine what would a Hollywood look like that took women seriously and took being a mom seriously. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't live in it, um, but I think it's worth some time, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's worth some energy to kind of try to imagine. But I also think that 
as you get higher and higher up and as you sort of make it through harder and harder things, I, I understand sort of not wanting to let go of that, of the like, but I, it was so hard for me and I pushed through it and that made me who I am. Um, you know, I feel like it's the, you know, military school thing of like, we always did that to the first year people and that's who I am and now I'm a senior and what do you mean I can't do it? You know, but that's the whole thing. I've been waiting four years to get to be terrible to the freshmen, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, who are we if we aren't that thing? Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think it's I think it's complicated, and I, I don't I don't really have a vision of what the better world would look like. But I just remember this huge feeling of disappointment of like I thought we were coming together in this room to answer that question or to begin to answer that question, and the feeling like no, we came together in this room to like hear war stories, which is just a different a different thing. War stories with estrogen yeah. involved. Speaking of estrogen, the next time you think about how great God's plan is, I want you to ask him about menopause, which is why I put, put my, <laughs> took my jacket off. Because um, menopause was a terrible idea. I don't know who thought it up. Um, here, but here. Anyway, um, Patty Jenkins, the, who directed Wonder Woman, mm -hmm. right. um, had been trying to get that film made forever. And, and if you really think about the comic book universe and how many comic book heroes we got, we got to Ant-Man before we got to Wonder Woman. That's how resistant. Can you imagine what she put up with? But I think she still had to pass through the, you know, whatever it was, gauntlet of her masters, her overlords, and they still are either male or married to the notions that have been invented by men who dominated the scene before she got there. And if she ever did, I mean, there was one national review in the conservative magazine about Wonder Woman that said, what was the name of the filmmaker, Hitler's filmmaker again? Oh, Lenny Riefenstahl? Yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl. I always think Lena Wertmuller. He said, this only proves, this film only proves that only Lenny Riefenstahl could do kinetic filmmaking. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that describes what my, what my yeah. heart does <laughs> um, yeah. when I hear that. So she still had to prove that right. she could move the camera around and edit and do all the things you need to do for action filmmaking, and I think she felt that very heavily, and that's mm -hmm. why she overdid, mm -hmm. um, I think, and I agree with you, some of the action. Um, and that, that speaks to this question, because the, the women who arrived first um, are arriving into a system that has certain presumptions that like if your wife is in labor you show up for work if your child is sick you show up for work you show up for work no matter what the job is your life and if it's not your life I've got 12 people who will happily replace you so the first women who get there are laboring under those same values and if they want to get ahead they're already suspect because they're women so they're going to do that and more so yeah, they're in labor writing scripts and they want everybody to know about it because those are their credentials, mm -hmm. you know. And on having gotten through it that way, the, you know, it's not very easy to make it easier for the next woman behind you because they're not gonna appreciate who you are and what you've been through. So we, we have needed to watch a few generations make their way through the process. And it, Margaret Thatcher is a great example of like the first woman there um, is often the most conservative woman because she's one more deeply invested than anybody else in the system being the way it is. And the way I think of it is, and I'll use a good word, I usually use a bad word, but I'm at Calvin College, so I'm gonna you, say. You know, whatever you wish. <laughs> if, if you have to climb over a pile of doo-doo to get to the top, you're gonna be covered in doo-doo when you get there. 
right? So, so this is about paradigm shift. It has to be about paradigm shift. Because as families, and I'm talking about as fathers as well mm -hmm. as mothers, we are very deeply poorly served, not only by, by writing a script while we're in labor, but frankly, by only getting scripts from people who write scripts while they're in labor, mm -hmm. right? Everybody is poorly served by that, men and women and especially children. So how are we going to rethink work and the nature of work and competition? Well, then you have to go upstream from that and say, it's the way we do capitalism. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's the way we do capitalism. We are suffering from a number of fundamentalisms as a, as a world right now, fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Islam, fundamentalist masculinity, and fundamentalist capitalism. Um, and I, I, so do you have a business school here at Calvin College? Any chance? Department. Okay. So, so um, I'm giving you this idea. I, I have a brilliant idea. Um, <laughs> First page of every textbook in business school says, well, sadly, there are certain things you have to subtract from your earnings, and they're just not negotiable, and so you can't even know where you are unless you know what your EBITDA is. EBIT is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I want to add a D, EBITDAD, right? Just because it's a happy-sounding mm -hmm. word. And the D is for dignity. Mm -hmm. Because dignity isn't optional, right? Dignity isn't, it's like taxes and depreciation. It's not optional. It is the cost of doing business. So what if you factored that as a cost to you um, in before you decide what you've earned instead of doling it out afterwards with what you've got left over? Mm -hmm. If that were actually understood to be, yeah, wired into the deepest part before you even start, that I pay people a living wage, I do not ask them to work when they're in labor, I give fathers and mothers paid leave long enough for them to be good good parents, their children, and, and take care of their sick parents and so forth. I don't pollute the environment. I don't harass people. I have diversity in leadership. All of these things cost, cost money or time, which is money. And um, what if you factored all of that in beforehand? I'm trying to get some business school to pick this up and run with it because I, I actually think it's not an unreasonable thing to expect. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even your own career, I mean, I think part of the what I love about the festival and other things like it is getting to meet people who took different paths, right? I mean, you didn't become a filmmaker till, I mean, say, say a little bit about your own story. Well, you know, I, this, I'm, I inherited money, like, you know, so I got to make some choices mm -hmm. that other people don't get to make. And I had four children, and much to my surprise and amazement, I really liked them. <laughs> they were really fun, and I enjoyed them. And, um, you know, I'd never been a kid who fantasized about the children she'd have or her marriage or anything like I was a big tomboy. I was assumed I'd have some big deal job. I didn't want to go somewhere and be somewhere else. They were really cool. And, and so I constructed a life around them that involved me not leaving a lot. So I did a lot of not-for-profit boards, and I learned about foundations, and I and activism that was strictly local. And I just basically constructed a life in the five boroughs of New York City so that I could be home for dinner and take them to the dentist and all of that. And it wasn't out of some you know, sense that that's what women should do. It was like, that's what I needed to do in my family with my kids. Mm -hmm. That's what my kids needed for me. And then when they were a certain age, when my youngest got to be about second grade and he was in school for most of the day, and, and my husband, by the way, is like an incredibly attentive um, father and an incredible father who was writing in the home all the time. Then I felt like, well, maybe I can go a little further afield. And that's when I started making films. And that's when my life got 
way more complicated. But I am so happy that I had the freedom to, to, to look at my family and say, what does this family need? What do I need? And what do they need? And then do that. Um, and, and that's what we need to be able to give people to do. Not because it's charity or social welfare, or something, because it's the best thing for families. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and what are we as a country if we're not doing the best thing for families? Mm-hmm. How about you? How do you feel about your kind of journey, path, whatever? Yeah, I mean, my, I feel like mine... Mine was different, but I also feel like I, I was lucky because I, I did feel like I was able to make choices. And I feel like that is a huge, it's a huge gift. Um, and, and some of that is just like circumstance and, and some of that is like my grandmother paid for me to go to college. Just, and, she, and she just did. And she was, was like a sort of grumpy, she wasn't like a, a warm, snuggly person. She just was sort of like a, a grumpy lady, but she lived in a house where the rent never went up for 30 years. And she never bought anything for herself. And she never bought new clothes. And she never bought new food. And she just squirreled, squirreled away, squirreled away, squirreled away, squirreled away. And then when I was 18, she was like, so I saved it all up and I'm paying for your college. And I was like, ah, that's so nice. Thank you. <laughs> you never hug me. Um, <laughs> Um, and, 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 and that made a huge difference. You know, I didn't, I didn't graduate with a ton of debt. Um, and so I was able to, you know, write plays and, and take jobs in theaters, um, and things like that. Um, cause I wasn't servicing, you know, a, a, a mountain of debt. Um, I, I started doing TV when my oldest daughter was a baby. Um, I, started thinking about it. I, I got my, I got a sort of a fellowship when she was one and I got my first staffing job when she was two. Um, and yeah, the, the, the question of, yeah, the family thing is, is tricky. And I, you know, my, my kids are almost five years apart and some of that is just like luck and biology and, you know, things working the way that they work. And some of that is, I didn't want to be like that woman who got pregnant on her first job. You know, it was my very first job. I had to prove myself. I was already coming in as a mom. Um, that's weird. It was weird to start as a mom. Like, yeah. the way you're supposed to do it is work for 10 years and then have a kid at 40. And I, I didn't do it that way. Um, you know, I had a kid at 30. And, and that just was not the way to do it. And so I felt very conscious of, like, I'm not, I'm not going to then have another kid too soon because then that's all I'll be in, in the eyes of this industry and in the eyes of this workplace. So I worked really, really hard and did do the late nights and did do the weekends and did do the thing of sort of saying, like, this isn't holding me back in any way. I work just as hard and just as much as anyone else. Um, and until I got to a place where I felt like I could say, like, okay, you know, now I'm going to go away for a little bit. Um, and and that even that was difficult. And I was scared. And I was like, I hope I don't have to go on any staffing meetings while I'm visibly pregnant. You know, I, 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 so I did start working and working really hard. And then, then the guilt hit, right? And I was like constantly saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I have to go somewhere tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they were like, shut up. We're fine. <laughs> so first of all, I, I really I fell prey to the assumption that it had to be the mother, mm-hmm. that the father wasn't good enough, which was ridiculous because he was more than enough. Um, and um, what, so the woman in my first film won the Nobel Peace Prize. And we all went as families together 
to Oslo to watch her win the Nobel, which is, and she had, you know, when she was in New York, she'd live with my family, and we were all woven together as families by that time, and um, so we were really close. So we're sitting there watching, and I looked at my daughter, and there was a little tear in her eye watching her dear friend, Lyman Bowie, win the Nobel Peace Prize, and a month later, she sat down. I had a birthday, and she wrote me, first of all, a letter on paper with a stamp and an address and everything. Um, like, you know, just causing the postal service to lose money, I'm sure. Um, and, and it said I was watching Lema win the award and I felt so emotional and I, I felt so lucky and blessed. And then I remembered how many times you've apologized to me for the work that you do that led directly to this. So I just want you to know I'm aware that I have the life I have because of the life you have. And I'm incredibly grateful. Hmm. So for any of you who are working and agonizing over it and wondering and wondering, there's, it's not all necessarily time you're taking away from them. You are coming home a richer, better person if you're doing the thing you really were called to do. And, and pay attention to that, so don't you know, go off to the grunt factory or whatever. But it, you know, it's really, I, I didn't know that. I, you know, again, the narrative I had been raised on was a Phyllis Schlafly narrative, and I lived such a guilty, guilty 10, 20 years of that, and now I understand mm -hmm. that, that they like that mom. Yeah, and now we have a new story to sort of combat the next wave of guilt, right? Last couple of minutes. Um, so Me Too has been a big thing in Hollywood, but you've been very vocal on Twitter, for example, talking about what's next that Me Too isn't sufficient, that we need to have a kind of a what's next yeah. moment. So I wonder if you guys can, can just finish off thinking about what you think would be the what's next, e e either specifically for Me Too or just more generally. And you can right. even talk about some of your projects that we could be looking for. Right, right. Well, so um, thank you for reading my long, long thread. I, I did a thread like, I literally pressed send on it before I found you in the lobby. <laughs> and it's like 15 long. And uh, if you are on Twitter, I'm at Abigail Disney, please retweet it because nobody's reading it. And I'm really mad. Um, <laughs> I'm doing my best for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically, there was Hollywood Reporter did a long story about poor Charlie Rose and how he's sad and broken and all alone. That's literally a quote from the article. Thank, thank you for laughing from the audience, so I don't have to do it for you. No, I, I am a human being with compassion, and I believe deeply that everybody deserves all of our love and compassion. And I feel that for Charlie Rose. He was not an entirely bad man. He's not Satan. Um, but I knew some of the people he harassed. And he, and he was known for years, for years. He was notorious for what he was held to account for. Um, so that didn't come out of nowhere. That was not like a, he, I know that the narrative is he was standing on the tracks and a freight train hit him. It was not that. And his female producer told people it wasn't a big deal and like ran yeah. interference for him, which is a whole yeah. other thing. Exactly. So, um, so, so what I was saying was, look, I feel his pain and I do not rejoice in him feeling it. Um, but he was, what he did to women needs to be understood. This is not a small thing. It affected her personally in her heart. It diminished her capacity to understand all that she was capable of doing. It made her hesitant to walk into rooms if she was the only woman. It made her hesitant to apply for more jobs. It made her hesitant to even think of herself as an equal. Professionally, it, it encourages other men not to take her seriously. It encourages other men to do the Tony Robbins things and not, not hire beautiful women because they are a risk to him. And 
it outsources the responsibility for what he's doing onto the woman. And that's why I think Osama bin Laden and Hugh Hefner belong in the same circle of hell. Because for Osama bin Laden... You believe like, in hell. <laughs> <laughs> High five on that one, right? It's stuck. <laughs> You're still Catholic. You just, my mother just took your body over for one second. That was. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> because Osama bin Laden sees a woman, feels desire, and is angry at her. It's her problem. Cover her, take her out of society, isolate her, exclude her. I don't care what the cost is to her. It's her problem. She needs to handle it. Hugh Hefner looks at a woman, feels desire. He must have her. No questions asked. I don't care what the cost is to her. I don't care about her degradation. I don't care what the cost is to women everywhere. I basically want it. I'm going to have it. That's all there is to it. And, and that's what the guy not hiring beautiful women is saying. I can't manage myself. So, so until we, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to use, it's not a naughty word, but it's an anatomical word. I feel like that all we're, this time. We're good time, with naughty words. Go, you go. <laughs> all this time, we have all, including feminists, been dancing around this giant, phallus in the middle of the conversation and treating it like it cannot be moved or changed. And that's male desire. And until we can get men to understand that that is their responsibility, that women do not get raped, men rape, right? Until we can finally, finally place all of the responsibility for it. Yes, we contribute to people desiring us. Yes, we dress wrongly. Yes, we get drunk. All of these things are true. None of them is an invitation, and certainly none of them is absolution for what it is that men do. So first of all, let's spend some time on that. And let's really see a sign that people are taking it in. And Charlie Rose is now uniquely placed as a person who's incredibly influential and was very respected in the media, he could really learn that. Mm -hmm. And he could really step forward and say, I get it now. I think I understand what it was I was doing wrong. And maybe there could be some apologies, some real sincere apologies to some of the people that he genuinely hurt in the process. And if he wanted a road to the redemption, it would be the bricks would be made of apologies. And, you know, and then let's talk about what's next. Then let's talk about the road to redemption, because there has to be a road to redemption. There's no island we can vote Louis C.K. and Hugh Hefner onto where they go away and never come back. We need to love them back into our lives. But it's really going to be hard to do it until they love us enough to, to understand what it is that we're having a problem with. You guys are so amazing. Really, if you have not seen their films, their TV shows, following them on Twitter, they both do wonderful stuff on Twitter. I, I'm just so grateful. We could have talked for three more hours. Thank you all for joining us today. A huge thanks to Abigail Disney, Dorothy Fortenberry, and Jennifer Holberg. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing located on the campus of Kelvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.kelvin.edu and festival.kelvin.edu, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.